So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And Father, we ask this morning as we spend this time together now continuing in our worship, as we sang and prayed and fellowship, that our worship can continue now as we submit our hearts, our souls, and our minds to the truth of your authoritative word. We pray, prepare us each accordingly, Lord. Even give us a desire to want to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church, through this particular section of your word. Speak to us by the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I have found in my life that sometimes one of the best medicines for personal discouragement or even sometimes self-pity is to consider and sometimes evaluate the tremendous struggles of other people and to at times sort of maybe just step back and instead of focusing on ourselves or our own discouragement or self-pity as we can fall into those times, to take the opportunity maybe to look at someone else who's not only struggling maybe in a similar way, but oftentimes we can find there are others who are struggling and suffering to a much greater extent. And as we do that, it kind of, I don't know, but it sort of seems to renew our perspective. Sometimes it gives us fresh uh, encouragement and wind in our sails to push through and to carry on in our own struggles. And I can't think of any way that that is more true than taking time to consider the suffering of Jesus himself. In fact, we're commanded to do that in the Bible. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, regarding Jesus, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And today, as we evaluate John chapter 19, this record of Jesus suffering now as he heads towards the cross, I pray that certainly we can see the love of God in a fresh way for our lives, but I hope as well that we can find through a renewed perspective regarding maybe the struggles that you may be enduring in your life this morning, that you might find some encouragement lest you go weary and discouraged in your own soul. Now, the backdrop is important as we come into John chapter 19. Remember, Jesus has been kept up all night long with no sleep. He's already undergone three illegal and unjust religious trials under the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the religious council. Through those, he's experienced false accusations that were heaped against him that were simply not true. He's also experienced physical assault and brutality. He's been abused multiple times. And I want to read to you the details of some of these events, actually from Luke's gospel, Luke 22. Listen, it sets the backdrop. It says, now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? So envision that for a moment. They blindfold him, and then they start punching him in the face. 
Now, anyone who's ever boxed before or even been in a fight before or had someone try and punch you, you know that the benefit of having your eyes open in a fight is if somebody tries to throw a punch at you, you have a little bit of reactionary time to maybe even just move with it to some extent that it, it lessens some of the blow even if it still hits you. If you have your eyes closed, you're blindfolded and somebody's punching you in the face, you're taking the full brunt of that across your face. So Jesus is blindfolded. They're punching him and beating him. It says also that they were blaspheming him, saying, uh, speaking against him. And it was day, it says, then the elders of the people and chief priests came together and they led Jesus to the council, saying to him, if you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I ask you, you will by no means answer or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And they said to him, Are you the Son of God? Jesus answered, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And the whole multitude arose and led him to Pilate, as we'll see today, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting the nation. That was not true. Forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. That was not true either, but it was another false accusation. Saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now at this point, we saw last week in John 18, the events picked up there where Pilate asked Jesus directly. Remember, he said, Are you the king of the Jews? Is this true? Are you the king of these Jewish people? To which Jesus answered, chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world, and if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should be delivered from the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Again, Pilate said, So you are a king then, verse 37? You rightly say I'm a king, for this cause I was born, and this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, Pilate sensing the accusations are stemming from personal jealousy and just religious ideals that the Jewish people hold, that there's really no basis for punishment for Jesus or an execution or a death sentence. He's trying to wash himself of this situation, wash his hands, and therefore we saw at the end of chapter 18 where he came before the people and he said, I find no fault in this man. In other words, there's nothing that justly would accuse him of any means of punishment, violating the law or need to be executed as they were longing for, but he was trying to release himself from the matter. So he said, look, it's your custom at the Passover feast that I release to you one prisoner. How about I release to you this man, the king of the Jews? Because he realizes he's innocent. He's looking for a way to release himself of what he's under, pressured by the Jews, to which the people said, no, give us Barabbas, who was a notorious criminal instead. They chose him instead of Jesus. Pilate then, wanting to know what he should do, Luke tells us this in his account, wishing to release Jesus, he called out to them again, but they shouted out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said the third time, why, what evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him or punish him and then let him go. It's at this point we pick up, look in John chapter 19, verse one with our account. It says, so Pilate, again, he's wanting to just punish Jesus and sort of then let him off the hook, hoping this will appease and satisfy their thirst for his suffering. Pilate took Jesus 
and scourged him. So Pilate's effort here is to punish Jesus because, as I said, he wants to appease the hatred that they feel towards Jesus. And he's hoping if he just punishes him in some way, they'll see him suffer and it will be sufficient. So we read verse 1 of chapter 19 that Pilate scourged Jesus. Now, scourging was basically just a severe and brutal process of whipping a criminal or an offender that the Romans would carry out. The person typically when they were scourged, the one who would be whipped was usually tied with their hands up above their head, usually stretched out over in some way, sort of a whipping post. The idea was to make the back more vulnerable and more exposed to the whip. And the scourge itself, which is referred to here, was a whip usually which had nine separate leather straps and at the end of those leather straps were then embedded little sharp pieces of bone or metal. And as the lictor or the one who would bring down the scourge, typically two Roman soldiers, one on each side, would begin whipping the victim. They would bring down the scourge on diagonal, diagonal blows upon their back, taking turns. And then as they snatched back the leather whip, the idea of the little pieces of bone or glass or, or, or metal that were there on the end, the idea was as they snatched back the whip very fast, that snatching process would then rip and lacerate the body tissue and basically rip off or just pull off chunks of flesh. And they would continue this process. In fact, the Bible tells us and history tells us as well, up to 39 times a person would be scourged in this fashion. And that was considered mercy from their perspective. Literally, the body would be reduced to jagged ribbons of bleeding flesh along the back and the side. And as this process of blows was repeated, oftentimes historians tell us underlying muscle tissue was torn into. And at times, even portions of the skeletal system itself and even vital organs were exposed as a result of that. Many people didn't even survive the scourging process because of the tremendous trauma and the incredible blood loss. Now, the reason why they would scourge a person really was kind of twofold. One, it was to weaken the offender before they were crucified, which was one of the most brutal forms of capital punishment, so that typically it was almost a way they figured they'll just bleed out and die quicker in the midst of the crucifixion process as they're being executed. But another main reason the Romans would scourge someone was to extract a confession. So as the whipping began... Typically, the one overseeing it would say, confess to what you've done. Tell us of the crimes. Confess your guilt to us. Or tell us if there are other accomplices. Are there others who were involved in this crime or whatever took place they were being sentenced for? And if you confessed, they would lighten up on the lash. If you did not confess anything and you chose to say tight-lipped about what you did and not admit you're wrong or indict other people who were guilty with you, the blows would become more and more and more severe to try and force you at the pain you were experiencing to make confession. Now, Jesus was innocent. He had nothing to confess. And on top of that, he didn't indict you and I, who were actually the ones that were guilty which means that our Lord took the full extent of the brunt of the brutality of that scourging process that he was undergoing that day. Verse 2 says, And then the soldiers after this 
twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And then they put on Jesus, it says as well, a purple robe. So a form of mockery. The Roman soldiers now do this, trying to mock Jesus like a king, adding really kind of just further insult to injury. It says here they put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. Interesting, the first time thorns appear in the Bible, if you remember, the book of Genesis, where Adam sinned and disobeyed God, and as the result of the curse in response to Adam's sin, we have the first mention that the ground would produce thorns. And how interesting that now here we have the Savior, Jesus, enduring pain and suffering, the one who would remove the curse from us. And now a crown of thorns, representative of the curse of sin, is upon the head of Jesus as he would be the one to alleviate the curse through his suffering and his death for you and I. It also says a purple robe was put upon him. Purple was the color of royalty. But understand, this wasn't just mockery alone. Again, if you can envision what's taking place after the scourging, his body is reduced to a shredded mess of flesh and blood. And as they put this robe upon him now, as there's profuse bleeding from the wounds across the back and the sides, that robe becomes saturated with blood. And as the coagulation process happens as well with the blood, the skin and the blood and the robe material all begin to adhere and stick together. And later on, when Jesus gets out to the cross, they're then going to rip that robe. Ever rip a bandage off before that's stuck to a wound a little bit? They're going to rip that robe off of his back and just further tear open with more excruciating pain the wounds upon Jesus' flesh. Verse 3 then tells us that they also were saying to Jesus in mockery, Hail, King of the Jews. And again, notice, more assault, they struck him with their hands. So the mockery, the insults, the abuse are furthered by the cruelty of these Roman soldiers. Mark 15 says they struck him on the head. Remember where there was a crown of thorns? And they spat on him bowing their knee and worshiping. So they're treating Jesus with just complete contempt, doing everything they can to humiliate him, to disgrace him publicly, to tarnish any sense of a decent reputation he would have as a man and just seeking to abuse him in every form, physically, mentally, emotionally. And he's already weakened and bloodied and they're just inflicting more and more compounding pain and suffering upon him. Yet in love for all of humanity, you and I included, Jesus not only endures it, he willingly embraces it on our behalf. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says this prophetically of Jesus, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. So we know they also ripped out portions of his beard from his face as well. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. The reason why Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement or punishment for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. So Jesus is experiencing this in tremendous suffering for you and I. Verse 4 goes on to say, And Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know, here's the second time, look at it, that I find no fault in 
him. So again, Pilate's making another effort to kind of absolve himself from this wrongdoing. Because no doubt, even as an irreligious man, as a rather cruel man, I mean, this was just a cruel Roman uh, politician who cares nothing of these things or these matters, uh, often was very cruel and brutal in his treatment of people in the society. But this is the second time now, notice, that he declares Jesus' innocence. And part of the reason why is he knows, even as an irreligious man, and not even a very compassionate man, he knows this is an utter horrible injustice that's taking place here. This is complete injustice, what we're doing to this man. He says there almost emphatically, you can sense it in verse 4 there, where this is the second time he's saying this. He says, notice, I'm bringing out that you may know. You need to know, I find no fault in this man. No, I don't find any fault in him. I still see nothing wrong with what this man has ever done. Now, Jesus here to me, I think by way of application for us this morning, becomes a fitting reminder that sometimes those who are not at fault end up unfortunately suffering in unjust ways because of other people's jealousy and wrong attitudes and wrong perspectives on things. And this is a part of the process of what happens. It happened to our Lord. And I say that because maybe today you're being mistreated or maybe you've been mistreated or kind of getting the raw end of a deal. And as a result of that, because of the wrong heart attitude or attitude of another person or what they're doing, you're experiencing mistreatment in your innocence. Listen, Jesus understands that because Jesus experienced that. And there is no one that can help you navigate that and process that better than Jesus himself who endured suffering, though completely innocent because of the error of others. Verse five says, then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to the crowd now, as he brings Jesus out, look what he says, exclamation, behold the man. So Pilate utters here an expression of Jesus, I think very likely out of complete astonishment at this man and what he's witnessing take place through this suffering. Again, consider all Jesus we've just talked about in the first few verses has endured up all night brutality, continually being assaulted, blindfolded, punched in the face, his beard being ripped out of his face, the scourging process, the continuous brutality that he's subjected to, spitting in his face and mockery, all these things. And in total innocence, what's Jesus doing? Nothing. He's not defending himself. He's not fighting back. He's not doing anything to justify himself. He is silently enduring it and he's absorbing it in himself out of love for even the people that are doing the wrongdoing. And he's just continually experiencing this, all this brutality and pain and suffering and he's enduring it and he's still standing faithful in the pocket, he's strong, and he's not even wavering. He's not retaliating, he's not wavering, he's just absorbing the whole thing. And please understand, this is what I mean by I think Pilate's astonished. Romans were tough. You study your history. I mean, these military uh, uh, soldiers in Rome, uh, the centur, I mean, th th these people were incredibly strong, tough individuals. And so Pilate has seen masculinity, toughness, Rambo, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, he's seen this kind of green beret, 
toughness exemplified many, many times over. And I think he's impressed with how strong Jesus was as a man. I think that's why he says there as he watched Jesus go through all this and he's still standing and says, Behold the man. That he would endure that. And that he could endure that and still be standing there. Jesus took so much and he handled it sacrificially, we might say, like a man. Like a man. He just embraced it and bore up under it in strength. Please see this. This is a great example of who and what Jesus truly was. He was a strong man. Sometimes modern art that we see of Jesus sometimes does a real disservice. It almost portrays Jesus as somewhat effeminate and weak. Yes, he was meek and humble, but he was the furthest thing from effeminate or weak or, or, or sickly in some way. Jesus, I believe, was the epitome of masculinity. He was a very strong man. Was he godly, loving, compassionate, kind, caring, servant-hearted? Yes, but I don't think he wanted to mess with him. Understand, what does the Bible say Jesus most likely was by way of trade? A carpenter. And understand, in that day of carpentry, there were no power tools. Which means if you were cutting something or cutting down wood or you had to make you know, planks to build something for doors and this and that, you were cutting down a tree manually, you were then chopping it up, and then you were, and everything, you, you weren't getting to use, you know, uh, screw runs to put stuff in, but you, everything was manual. It was tough physical labor. He was a carpenter. And everything he did, imagine, he was doing it all manually, physically. He didn't have no pickup truck. Well, throw everything in the pickup truck and we'll drive to the job site. Mm, you, were, you were muscling it out somehow. There was no pickup truck. And so Jesus probably was in incredible shape as a man, was physically strong. He walked all through the hills of the area of Israel, lived somewhat rustic with his disciples. And then he, now we see here, endures this brutal, painful treatment beyond our imagination. And he's just standing there bearing up under it. And I, again, that is why to me, Pilate is saying, behold, this man. And let me say this morning, I think sometimes it does all of us good to take a personal good look at who Jesus is for ourselves. And to just take some time and behold, there is no man who's ever lived like that on this earth. That is a man. That is the man. And that is someone we should be highly impressed by, worthy of our consideration, what he endured, what he experienced, and taking it the way that he did. Well, verse 6 goes on now, and I think Pilate's wanting to kind of play to their pity. He's thinking, man, would you have compassion on this? is unreal. When the chief priests and officers saw Jesus, notice, they just cried out saying, crucify him crucify him so Pilate's probably thinking with a little bit of bloodshed and all the scourging and the pain man hopefully a little bit of pity will arise and okay that okay that's enough and and he's thinking maybe their thirst for pain and suffering would be satisfied and maybe he could let Jesus go at this point but despite the bloody mess of wounds Jesus had to be the religious leaders have no compassion they just intensely demand in a rage that he be executed crucify him crucify him well, verse 6 goes on to say, And Pilate said to him, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. So Pilate's so disturbed by what they're demanding in this injustice, he utters now a very, very foolish statement here in verse 6. 
He says, I find no fault. You take him and crucify him yourself. Now, Pilate here, understand, third time he declares Jesus' innocence, that he has no reason for death, rather than being a strong leader and shutting down the manipulative actions, he gives in to the pressure and the words of the people and tells them to go crucify Jesus for themselves. Now, first of all, that's a violation of Roman law. That's a, a ruler, a politician telling people, Go break the law. The Jews had no right to execute capital punishment. When the Romans took over and occupied Israel, the Roman Empire took away their right to capital punishment. Only the Romans could put someone to death. Jews would stone someone to death anyway. Romans crucified people. But Pilate here, because he is a weak-willed man, and quite frankly, we see in the Bible, a people pleaser, and he wants their approval, he impulsively tells them to go break Roman law. He says, you take him and crucify him yourself. What's he doing? He's trying to avoid conflict or needing to deal with an issue. But in so doing, he just encouraged and endorsed wrong behavior to continue. And his passivity and his unwillingness to just stand in what is right and be the leader that he's supposed to be and address wrong behaviors and wrong words and manipulative attitudes. Instead, Pilate just gives in and what he does is he just gives permission for people to keep acting incorrectly. And can I just say something? That doesn't solve anything. That's Parenting 101, gang. Oh, they're pressuring Fine, you can have the candy. No! Please, 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 And then they throw it. I mean, this is parenting 101. No. I'm in charge, you are not. No. You give in the manipulation. For those of you who don't have teenagers yet, God bless you. We'll be doing a lot of counseling. No. You're in charge. It's called authority. At times, you don't, you don't, listen. Be careful. All of us, to some extent, we have influence, leadership, direction, places where God uses us. I just want to, we need to be careful. Pilate's such a, a poor example here of the failure of being a people pleaser and being a weak-willed individual. Whenever somebody has impure motives or they're behaving wrongly or doing what's wrong or being manipulative, you don't have to be cruel. You don't have to be cruel to address it. But by all means, Ask the Lord for the courage to at least correct it and to at least address it rather than giving them permission or doorway to just be more manipulative and misbehave continuously. And Pilate here fails under this. He just gives in. He says, oh, just you take him. Fine, have your way. You, you crucify him yourself. And the Jews answered. They, they now have to correct him. We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. So they say, listen, we don't have the right, they said last chapter, to put him to death, but we still disagree with you. He's a criminal. This is the crux of the matter you see coming out now in their mind. They, though wrongly, believe Jesus is guilty of blasphemy because they say he has made himself the son of God. And according to our law, if anybody falsely claims to be God, they deserve to die now, let me just say, Jesus didn't make himself the son of God, right? Jesus was the son of God. But I want you to take notice as well, especially for people who like to argue and be Bible critics, even Jesus's enemies admitted that Jesus claimed to be God. 
people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He's not God. He never claimed to be God. Even his enemies in the Bible admit that he was claiming to be God because he was God. John 5 says the Jews sought to kill Jesus because he said he was God, was his father, making himself equal with God. You see the same thing again in John chapter 10. Also, Jesus was God living in this world, revealing God and seeking to rescue humankind. And this was their biggest issue. They couldn't accept. The Jews refused to believe that this was their Messiah. They refused to believe that this was God sent into the world in human flesh. And because of their unbelief, they wanted to see Jesus put to death because it was grating on their conscience. And we don't like things to grate on our conscience. So if something's bothering our conscience, what do we do? Get rid of it. I don't want to address my conscience, so... I'm going to run from it or get rid of it. And this is what they want to do. Get, we don't want to address what's going on. Eliminate Jesus. Put him to death. Well, verse 8, look what happens. Pilate heard this saying that he's the son of God, they're saying, and he was the more afraid. So Pilate's afraid when he hears Jesus might be the son of God because in his mindset, if Jesus does represent some divine being, the Romans were polytheistic in their thoughts, he's thinking if he represents some divine being or is a son of a god, uh, I just tortured this man horribly. And he's thinking, uh-oh, what if the gods are upset with me? This may be in retribution. So he's worried. So verse 9 says he went back into the praetorium, the judgment hall, and said to Jesus, he's probably getting a little panicky now, I'm sure, where are you from? <laughs> I don't know if he said it that way, but I envision it. <laughs> but Jesus gave him, notice, no Answer. So Jesus already answered that question of Pilate we saw back in chapter 18. He told him, my kingdom's not from this world. He's not going to change his answer just because he's pushed. And also, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. He doesn't give any answer because Isaiah 53, 7 says, Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears are silent. So he opened not his mouth. So Jesus doesn't defend himself. He doesn't answer because he's already answered it once. Verse 10 says, And Pilate then said to him, probably pretty agitated, Are you not speaking, probably he emphasized, to me, to Pilate, the governor of Judea? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? So what's Pilate doing? The typical, don't you know who I am? Do you realize who I am? Don't you realize the power and the authority that I have? Now, most people would cower under the intimidation of a Roman ruler because of the fear of consequence of rejecting or rebelling against Roman authority. Pilate here is kind of arrogantly uh, sort of wanting to infer and show everybody around, right? He's in charge. And so this is a typical power play of somebody who uh, is you know, in love with their own authority. So he says, don't you know who I am? I have the power to put you to death or I have the power to release you. Verse 11, Jesus answers him and says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. That is from God. So Jesus lovingly, but let's be real, honestly speaks to Pilate in response to his statement and he puts arrogant Pilate kind of back into his little place, right? And here's the thing. Pilate needed to be humbled. And when the Lord sees somebody needs to be humbled, he will always graciously do that. 
He wasn't cruel. He wasn't mean about it. But he did put him back into his place. He, he just humbly allowed him to be reminded of who he really was not and, and just allowed him to just experience a little bit of humble pie and, and to have to swallow it. And so Jesus here says to him, listen, you have no power against me unless it had been given to you from above. He puts things back into perspective, you could say, for Pilate here. And, and the Lord is always faithful, is he not? When someone needs to be humbled, you or I, whoever, to humble those who are proud in heart. He's really good at that. And I'm thankful he does that for us. It's healthy for us, and he's always faithful to do it. So he puts things back into perspective rather than uh, kind of get Pilate the idea there in front of everybody that he possesses his authority because there's something special about him. He says, no, Pilate, the only reason you have the authority, power, position, and control you do is because it's been given to you from above, from God. God allowed you to be in that position. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which is from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Jesus was establishing really what was a, a, a doctrinal, scriptural truth, that Pilate's authority, even though he was an unsaved man, was from God. It was given to him by God. That speaks foremost, Romans 13 does, in regards to civil positions of authority, political authority positions, uh, you know, law enforcement, police officers, those that are in those positions and, and those who provide governance over civilians, leaders in those roles, politicians, mayors, governors, legislators, presidents, law enforcement officers, those who serve in these capacities, the Bible says the authority they have is an authority that has been allowed to them by God. That they've been granted that position by God's sovereign control. He's permitted them to be in that place. So leaders, therefore, with that kind of authority, civilly, should realize they have a divine privilege. And they have a divine stewardship from God. And therefore, he's given them their role. And they will one day answer to God for how they exercise their role. And how they operated within it. Now, as those under leaders in those capacities, we have a responsibility and a stewardship as well, the Bible says. And that responsibility and stewardship simply is this, to be respectful and submissive. It tells us in 1 Peter 2, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or as to governors, or those sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. That's what law enforcement people do. They're sent to punish and correct those who are violating the law and doing evil. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So listen, even as those in authority need to recognize their authority is from God, and they'll be held accountable for it, and they'll answer to God for it, those of us under their authority in society, we have responsibility and stewardship as well. It's to respect and be submissive to the authority that they are given by God to exercise in our society. And this, I think, is an important thing. Jesus is not being rebellious here just because he's being honest with Pilate. He's not rebelling or doing anything of that nature. And we have to remember, in a, listen, especially in a culture today, I mean, let's just be very frank, in a culture today we live in where there's basically a generally rebellious attitude towards civil authority. I mean, that's kind of the norm now. 
that any form of civil authority, governmental, law enforcement or whatever, it's almost perceived as it's appropriate and justified to be rebellious in your attitude. I mean, from a lot of times, even from the first, from the first word. You know, uh, someone addresses you or a law enforcement officer asks someone to do something. And from the first word, there's no need for an attitude if they ask you to do it. They have the legal right in the United States of America. If they ask you to do something, you are supposed to submit. That's called the law. That's how it's supposed to work. To be cooperative. What do you want me to do? Sit here? Okay, if you tell me to sit here, then I don't have a right to stand up. If you tell me sit down, I, I should need to sit down. If you tell me to stop talking, I need to stop talking. If you tell me not to walk over there, I'm not supposed to walk over there. That's called simple submission. This is, this is something that, again, is something that God has orchestrated. Why? For peace. For civility. So that things wouldn't get out of control. So that there wouldn't be anarchy and rebellion and unfortunate hurt and loss of lives. And this is something God has instituted. The authority that political leaders and police officers have, it's to be respected and submitted to for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, because it's what's best for society and what God's intended here. So Jesus acknowledges where Pilate's authority is from and, and it's something that he needs to be accountable for. But notice what he says as well, verse 11. Therefore, Jesus says... You couldn't do anything unless God granted you permission. Therefore, he says, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Notice, interesting, Jesus indicates the individuals who had falsely accused him and turned him over to Pilate, really, who were the ones who started all the trouble. Jesus says, Pilate, actually, they've committed the greater sin. They're the ones that actually are in a sense, carrying more guilt from God's viewpoint. And I think there's just a good reminder in Jesus' words there for all of us. Jesus is apparently very displeased when we wrongly accuse people. And to me, it seems that Jesus also is very displeased when people start trouble. And Jesus says the, the, the false accusers and the troublemakers, the trouble starters, just, they're guilty of even a greater sin than you, Pilate, than even what you have done. And I think it's just a good reminder. We need to be careful of not falsely accusing in situations. We need to be careful of not trouble-starting in situations. We need to guard our hearts because I don't want the Lord's displeasure against me for those kind of things. Well, verse 12 goes on to say, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But again, the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, the Jews are trying to further intimidate Pilate here under pressure by saying to him to make him fearful if you let him go you're not a friend of caesar now here's why this would make pilate nervous historically pilate was already at this time on thin ice with tiberius caesar who was the emperor at that time because since he had come to power as the governor there in judea by appointment he had already made a few blunders that displeased caesar He'd already made a few political mistakes and word had kind of trickled back to Caesar of what he had done and kind of appearing that maybe Pilate couldn't handle his position effectively. On one occasion, Pilate entered into the city with figures of Caesar displayed publicly. And again, that's against Jewish law. In their minds, graven images were, were an absolute appalling disgrace. So therefore, the Jews protested these graven images of Caesar as a deity, and it started a revolt among the area of Judea there, where Pilate was. 
and they protested and rebelled and word, trick word trickled back to Caesar that there's unrest where Pilate's governing. On another occasion, we know historically, Pilate wanted to build a water aqueduct to bring more water into Jerusalem because the sacrifices created a lot of blood. So he thought, I need to bring more water into that area. He begins to build an aqueduct and imagine this, there wasn't enough money in the government budget. So guess what he did? He went and forcefully stole money from the temple treasury. Well, you know the Jews weren't going to like that very much either. And this caused another revolt and protest. In fact, even uh, civil unrest and murders happened as a result. And again, word got back to Caesar and he was not pleased. And understand, because Caesar prided himself that Roman domination brought complete peace because it was ruled by the fist. So there was never revolts. There was never unrest. There never should be. And Pilate, knowing he's sort of on thin ice with the emperor, he's afraid he might kind of lose his job because he's already had a few blunders in his position. He now hears the people say to him, if you let Jesus go, you're not a friend of Caesar. Uh-oh, that, that's a scary statement. That's kind of a veiled threat. Kind of that's their way of saying to him, listen, that's their way of kind of saying, if you let Jesus go, we're going to go tell your leader. And you're going to get in trouble because he claimed to be a king. And anybody who claims to be a king is a threat to the Roman emperor. And we're going to go tell on you again. And Pilate's kind of fearful and insecure. He might lose his job. And they're kind of using this as a manipulative tool to twist his arm to get what they want. So this makes Pilate very nervous. At which point, verse 13 says, when Pilate heard that saying, he brought Jesus out, sat him down in the judgment seat in a place that's called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation day, which means it was Friday, the day before the Sabbath, and about the sixth hour, around noon. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, notice, Away with him. Crucify him. Boy, isn't it amazing how determined people can be when they want to rid themselves of Jesus' rulership over them? Pilate then responded to them, or excuse me, saying to them, Yes, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king, look at this, but Caesar. Now this is astonishing, think of it. They reject Jesus' leadership and they're pledging allegiance to an evil Roman emperor instead. Now I want you to just take notice of something. That is just a foreshadow of what's going to happen in the future with the Jews. Because those who have rejected Jesus' lordship over them are one day going to pledge their loyalty to a satanic world leader called the Antichrist. And in a much greater degree as Pilate, this one who they pledged their allegiance to brought horrible suffering and devastation ultimately to the Jewish people. The Antichrist who they initially pledged allegiance to will bring the worst historical persecution and suffering the Jews have ever imagined. Well, Pilate being a weak-willed leader, he just now gives in to the manipulative pressure. Luke tells us the people were being insistent and demanding and it says the voice of the people prevailed. And Pilate says, that's it. I, I, you, this is going to happen. Verse 16, he delivered them, Jesus, so he could be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And bearing his cross, he went up to a place of a skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. So the sentence of crucifixion is now granted. They forced Jesus to carry his cross. That's the horizontal beam, probably 50 to 75 pounds, historians tell us, across his shredded bloody beaten back with the wood grinding into those wounds as he walks out of the city 
to the place there, to the place of the skull, the Bible says. Other accounts call it Calvary, the Hebrew Golgotha. And at this location, if you've been to Israel before, I've been there and seen it, there is a rock formation there, which is believed to be the crucifixion site of Jesus, that the rock formation literally looks so clearly like the, the face of a skull when you look at it. And it's just an amazing thing. I have to tell you, I confess, that is the place on my trip to Israel where I just fell apart emotionally. <laughs> when I just sat there and realized, oh my goodness, what was done for me at this location here? As Jesus, it says, at this location, verse 18 says, it was there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. So it was the place of the crucifixion of Jesus. And again, as I said, one of the most painful, torturous forms of execution. Crucifixion wasn't invented by the Romans. It was invented by the Persians, but it was perfected by the barbaric and cruel mindset of the Roman Empire. And crucifixion, understand, was a death sentence intended purposely to give prolonged, intensified suffering. Sometimes it took people days, days, to die in the crucifixion process. They would typically lay the victim down and they would use sometimes anywhere from 7 to 12 inch historic cells spikes and pierce them through. And again, where Jesus was pierced through, it would have been actually through the area right below the hand because if you put it into the hand, there's not enough there to hold the body weight. It would have just ripped out. But what they've uh, discovered, and I actually have a, a, a document here from the Journal of American uh, Medical Association where they did a medical study of the suffering of Jesus. And from a medical perspective, how typically the, the, the piercing would have been right here in the, the wrist area, the lower part of the hand, because there's where your ulna and your radius kind of are, are together. And as they're tied together there, it sort of forms a hook. So it would be able to sustain the weight of the body where if it was in the hand, it would have ripped completely. The interesting thing is right there, you have a very, very sensitive nerve which would cause excruciating pain to radiate through your body as you were pierced. Then the feet were put together and pierced as well and then lifted up. And what the victim typically died of on top of everything else was usually a buildup of carbon dioxide in their body, hypocarbia. Because as your body was slunched over in that form and the weight was pulling down and you're hanging by just this and your feet there, the weight was pushing down on the diaphragm. So the only way that you could breathe was to have to pull yourself up on those spikes from your feet or through your hands and force through the excruciating pain to take a breath and then you would slump back down again. And typically it was harder for the exhalation process so carbon dioxide would build up and through asphyxiation or suffocation, it's almost like that buildup, that is ultimately what typically killed someone. They basically suffocated to death. Remember, Jesus spoke seven times from the cross, which means every time he had to push through that just to utter a statement. And this is what Jesus was going through, experiencing this. Verse 19 says, Pilate wrote a title, put it on the cross, saying, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, it was typical to do this. They'd write out the offender's 
crime or what they were accused of being guilty of to post it publicly. That's why he writes here as a deterrent. This was to people. This is what this man was accused of. He was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read the title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Notice, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Interesting. Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Three languages. Hebrew is a language of religion. Greek was the language of the modern world or culture and education. And Latin was the language of law and order. What was God doing? He was making sure everybody in the world knew who Jesus was. Because Jesus is a savior for all the world. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God was making that evident. Well, the chief priest, verse 21, said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews, to which Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So they demand Pilate change that statement, but he refuses and says to them, look, what I've written, I've written, let it go. One commentator said this, Pilate wrote those words, but God wanted his son to die with this proclamation upon the cross, king of the Jews. Isn't it interesting why, therefore, Pilate would say what is written is written. It's, it's, it's unchangeable. It's not alterable. Why? Because God's superintending over everything. You could say of any part of God's word that God's attitude will always be to humanity. What I have written, I have written. It's not going to be changed. God's not going to be persuaded to alter something. Who Jesus is, is who Jesus always will be. Well, let's finish up verse 23 and 24. The soldiers, it says... When they crucified Jesus, took his garments, made four parts, and each soldier a part, also the tunic. And the tunic was without seam, woven from top in one piece. And they said, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them and cast my clothing. For my clothing they cast lots, and therefore the soldiers did these things. So Jesus now, what this is describing, being stripped of his clothing, further humiliation. What's described here, this tunic without seam, is a reference to what would be the undergarment for a Jew stripped off of him, leaving him humbly exposed, further disgraced, further embarrassed and shamed. And notice all these shameful things, all this disgrace, it's happening to Jesus but yet still, it's happening in fulfillment of what God predicted exactly how it would happen. He quotes here from Psalm 22, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lot. Hundreds of years before, God said this is exactly how it's going to happen. And why was it all happening that way? Not just to show God's love, but to show the world this is the authentic one sent from heaven. You don't have to question it. This is the reliable one. Everything, some 300 prophecies fulfilled of Jesus, authenticating who he is, despised and rejected, numbered with the transgressors, the one bearing all of this suffering for you and for I. Can I remind you again of Hebrews 12, what it said in light of Jesus' suffering? It says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Listen, this morning, can I encourage you? Life's hard. It's got suffering and struggles and difficulties, and sometimes as people, we can be pretty stinking mean to one another and hurt one another. 
But can I tell you one of the greatest antidotes is focus on Jesus and you will find in your suffering and hardships as you focus on his suffering, you will find fresh measures somehow of strength and endurance as you see the fellowship of his suffering and say, Lord, what you endured, you know pain, you know suffering. Help me in my pain and suffering. Give me endurance. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?